Journey thought they were on the verge of something big in 1980, and they were, but only after a period of sudden adversity, wrote Nick DeRisso for Ultimate Classic Rock, from which much of this account is sourced. Their first three studio albums with Steve Perry had each sold millions, followed by another multi-platinum live project, Captured. The band had already exploded on tour, and the Captured record was exploding, and the energy on that record was something you couldn't deny, says band co-founder Neil Sean. And so, I felt that at any point, that whatever we came in with, as long as the songs were good, it was going to be big. But Greg Rowley, who'd started Journey with Sean after both left Santana, wanted out. When it came time to add a new studio cut to Captured, they had to turn to a sessions player, Steve Roseman. The party's over, hopelessly in love, went top 40, but Journey was abruptly in disarray. Certainly nothing pointed to the success of Escape, which arrived on July 17, 1981, after the addition of Rowley's replacement, former Babies member Jonathan Kane, solidifying the lineup for the Escape album at Kane, Steve Perry, Neil Sean, Ross Valerie on bass, and drummer Steve Smith. Yet, with the new lineup, the album became Journey's first ever number one album, amid an amazing run of four top 20 hit singles. Quote, I have to attribute that to Jonathan coming in and joining the writing team, says Steve Perry. John had so many creative ideas, and he and I did a lot of lyrics back then, too. It just turned another corner, though at the time it felt like we were just doing more music the same way we always had. But time has shown it to be more of a quintessential album than some of the others. Kane had been featured on a pair of Babies albums released in 1980 before joining Journey. They met when the Babies served as opening act on a tour in support of Journey's 1980 album, Departure. Something immediately clicked between Kane, Perry, and Sean. When I joined, Kane said, I was able to help put the pieces more solidly together. I think I maybe oiled it and everything flowed better. It was that mix of different personalities. They had a kind of swagger to what they did that I really liked. Neil's guitar playing was incredible. Perry's voice was in its prime. Steve Smith and Ross Valerie laid it down. They were a machine. I remember they had this rehearsal warehouse they used in Oakland, and the first time I went there, all of my gear was set up. I'd never had that before. The band sounded like a rocket taking off. That's Kane once again. Now, Kane was a conduit between Sean and Perry. Neil had a lot of rock and roll ideas that I would go through and maybe tweak a little and present them to Steve in a more nuanced way. Neil had a lot of unstructured melody in his head. I could sometimes add to those melodies, and all of a sudden Steve would know what to do with them. When John came in, he brought in a whole different thing, says Sean. It was like he's an accomplished songwriter and an accomplished keyboardist, a classical keyboardist like on piano. Greg was more of a bluesy guy, which was a completely different thing. So we went more with John, and there was always more of a classical vein to what we were doing as opposed to what we were doing with Greg. On their first day of writing together, as a matter of fact, in the attic of their road manager's apartment in San Francisco, Perry played the melody for Who's Crying Now on a cassette that he'd been storing his ideas on. And within an afternoon, that song was written. We had an instant chemistry, said Kane. At Perry's house, they came up with open arms from a piano part that John Waite had rejected for the babies. Too bad for John Waite, Perry said after hearing it. Quote, I think it was probably emotionally not so comforting for Neil to see us writing together, says Perry. But then we wrote with Neil too. The Don't Stop Believing stuff we all came up with together. There was a lot of stuff he was involved with co-writing. Stone in Love. Great guitar riff. That one came from Neil. Neil brought the fire and the attitude, Kane said. I wasn't conscious of just writing with Steve or just with Neil. It was about the three of us. Together, we made it journey.
Escape was made with remarkable efficiency and cost just $80,000 in total. Perry, whose mantra was reportedly, time is money, rarely did more than two takes. Despite the dramatic shift in sound, the album was relatively easy to make, but that doesn't mean that Journey skimped on the details. They were all sound freaks, none more so than Perry, whose knowledge of recording techniques and reproduction were matched only by his desire to get down on tape the things he was hearing in his head. He recalls spending two days in the studio getting the right ah sound on the word arms in open arms and trying to keep his spectacular longer notes on Don't Stop Believin' exactly in tune. Perry even dictated the type of vinyl used for the first pressings of the record. And Journey emerged with a new signature song. Not Don't Stop Believin', in fact, at the time, Open Arms, a song that set a template for 80s power ballads, was considered the album's standout single. The track soared to number two and remained there for six weeks in early 1982. It had followed the opening single success of Who's Crying Now, which topped out at number four. In between was Don't Stop Believin', a single that barely crept into the top ten. Today, it's undoubtedly the best-known thing about Escape, a track that became the adopted anthem of not one but two World Series teams, the 2005 White Sox and 2010's Giants a fixture on TV, including, of course, the legendary Sopranos appearance and on Glee and one of the best-selling catalog items ever on iTunes. Don't Stop Believin' had much humbler beginnings, though. Kane brought the chorus, melody, and lyric into a rehearsal for the album being held at an Oakland warehouse. He says, The phrase came from my father. I had a tough time trying to get down the road in the music business, and he used to tell me that stuff. Don't stop believing. Perry asked for some rolling piano to get things started, and he and Sean started tracking the music. That arpeggiated guitar riff, for instance, followed Perry's suggestion that Sean approximate the sound of a train. Perry and Kane finished the lyrics later, including a line about a non-existent place called South Detroit. Perry says, quote, I ran the phonetics of East, West, and North, but nothing sounded as good or emotionally true to me as South Detroit. The syntax just sounded right. I fell in love with the line. It's only been in the last few years that I've learned that there is no South Detroit, but it doesn't matter. Sean says, Don't Stop Believin' earns Journey as much as triple the amount of any other catalog song these days, but he stresses that there's more to escape. He says, I listen to it now, and it's a great record, but it's all over the map. You've got a song like Dead or Alive on it, which is like really musical punk. I don't know what you'd call it. It had tight time changes and drum lines that Steve Smith had to sort out. And then you have open arms on the other side of the spectrum. And so it was like everything between A and Z and everything in the middle. Escape ultimately went all the way to number one, selling nearly 10 million copies and staying in the top 40 for more than a year. And the band scored those hits, Don't Stop Believin', Who's Crying Now, Stone in Love, and their first number one, Open Arms. And now it becomes the latest inductee into the Drive Rock of Fame. I'm Kelly Parker.